You ready for Romans? Come on, you're saying I was going to leave this church if you didn't start Romans pretty soon. It's been all summer. It's been since spring. We've been in Romans this morning. We're going to be in Romans 11. So you want to turn there. And as you're turning to Romans 11, let me set things up a little bit by making a few comments about what happens when you first become a Christian. When people are new Christians, there is a great amount of humility. It's associated with being a Christian. And you watch people who are new Christians and you, you see humility right before your very eyes. And this makes sense because they've come to understand that they are sinners deserving, let me repeat that, deserving of God's judgment. And they come to understand that there's nothing they can do to save themselves. They've come to understand that by God's free gift, by God's unmerited favor, grace, they've experienced salvation because God showed His love by sending His Son to do what we can't do. See? Humility. And by God's grace, they're, they're trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. Not in themselves, not in their religion, not in anything else. There, there's humility abounding. It's a great thing. Tragically then, Something happens too much. We forget. We don't have very good memories. And, and before you know it, we're Christians and we still know how to say grace means unmerited favor. And we still know how to say grace means free gift and we don't earn it. We still know how to say these things, but we, we start looking arrogant. And we see ourselves as good Christian people. And we look down on those bad people out there who do those bad things. And, and we are so much better than they are. And to make matters worse, sometimes the Bible, our reading, I should say, of the Bible makes it worse. The Bible doesn't make it, make it worse. But sometimes then we start reading the Bible in a certain way. And we start learning. We read the Old Testament. We start seeing Israel with all of their warts and all of the sin. We see that Israel, from, from lying to deceiving, to grumbling, to immorality, to the, to the in one sense, ultimate low point. They're, they're literally so into idol worship that they are worshiping the god Molech and they are sacrificing their own children to a pagan god. And you read the Old Testament a certain way and you say, I'm so glad I'm not like those Israelites. They are such bad people. And then you get to the New Testament reading the Bible a certain way. And you see that when Jesus, Messiah, comes, the Jews see him and they don't bow and worship as the one who is going to reign on the throne of David. They see Jesus and they say, he's not the Messiah, he's the devil. And then what do they do? They hand him over to their mortal enemies, the Gentiles, to be crucified by the Romans. And you say... They don't deserve God's grace, which is a contradiction in terms, by the way. And we start thinking that we deserve God's grace, which is a contradiction in terms. It can happen. It happens. In one sense, that wouldn't surprise me if it happens to all of us as Christians, because you do see the sin for what it is. It's bad. But you start seeing yourself as somehow deserving of grace, even though that doesn't even make sense. Well, just as reading about Israel's history can create something bad 
in your perspective. Learning about Israel's future can help you in your perspective. It can help you fight arrogance spiritually. It can help you fight pride spiritually. And that's what we're going to do this morning in Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, verses 25 to the end of the chapter, what we are going to do is we're going to look at the future for Israel, the future of Israel, but not as an end in and of itself. We're going to look at the future salvation of Israel, which should do three things for us this morning. As we look at the future for the nation of Israel, let's let it do three things. Number one, squash pride. Squash pride. Number two, as we look at the future for the nation of Israel, let it remind us that salvation is all of God. Let it remind us that salvation is all of God. And number three, let it remind us, or excuse me, number three, let it ignite our worship. Let it ignite our worship. So what we're going to do is we're going to study the future of Israel, God's future plan to save Israel. And as we do that, it's going to squash pride. It's going to remind us that salvation is all of God, which is going to then lead us into having our worship ignited. And they all go together. Now, if you are a theologian or you want to be a theologian and you want the fancy terms for, for understanding this, if you want three new big words to know for the day, if you don't, that's fine. But if you do, here's what's going to happen. We're going to look at eschatology, an understanding of the future, the future for Israel, eschatology. And then we're going to see how eschatology leads us to understanding, ready for the next one? Soteriology an understanding of salvation, soter. Jesus is the Savior. He's the soter in Greek. Ready for the third one? You're not. No, are you ready? Okay, so we're going to do eschatology, soteriology, and that is going to then lead us into doxology. Doxa, glory. Giving glory to God, worship. So it's a great text. Studying eschatology, which sadly sometimes is an end in and of itself just because we want to understand facts. No, 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 not in this context. Let's understand the future for Israel, eschatology, so we understand soteriology better, doctrine of salvation, even yours and mine, and that's going to lead us into doxology. It's going to lead us into worshiping God. There'll be a quiz afterward. (laughs) Do you like learning these words or not? Is it pointless? This means yes. Okay. I didn't look at you. I have no idea what you said or what you didn't say, but I'm going to do it next week too. Uh, Everyone should be able to understand the sermon, but if you want to kind of go to the next level, I want to give you a little bit extra to go to the next level, and it makes great sense as far as the flow of the passage. All right, let's jump in and look at the first thing that a future future salvation for Israel should do, and that is squash arrogance. Look at verse 25 where it says in Romans 11, lest you be wise in your own sight... In other words, lest you be arrogant, right? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. And he's going to talk about a future for Israel. Let's go ahead and look. In fact, verse 25 goes on to say, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will, so it's talking about the future, will be saved. Lest you're arrogant in your perspective of salvation, including your own. Lest you're prideful. Lest you be wise in your own eyes about your own salvation. Let me tell you about eschatology. Let me tell you about the future for the nation of Israel. Now, in one sense, it's really hard to be wise in your own eyes when it comes to salvation if you read Romans 1 to 5. 
If you read Romans 1 to 5, 1 to 3, and there's hope for salvation, you say, well, it certainly isn't because I'm so wise. It isn't because of anything I've done. It's not because I'm better than other people because it puts us all in the category of being sinners undeserving of God's favor and that surely squashes our pride. But how quickly we forget and then we go through Romans 9 to 11 which is talking about Israel and we know about Israel. We know they don't deserve salvation. We know that they're a bunch of spiritual flunkies in the Old Testament. We know it, we know it, we know it. But now what he's going to show us is God has a future plan for them. If he has a future plan for them, we know they don't deserve it. That's going to cause our minds to go back to the fact that we don't deserve it. And it's going to squash our spiritual pride is what it should do and hopefully what it will do. At least that's what I hope happens today. We are not the end all as Gentile Christians. We think sometimes we are. And we read the Old Testament and say, we're better than they are. Or if you go to Israel, you, you, you will struggle with not being, you'll, you'll struggle to not be anti-Semitic. Because you see all this stuff being done for money. Even the religious stuff. And you go, man, they definitely don't deserve grace. <laughs> Contradiction. But what, what we should be seeing in this passage is not getting wise in our own eyes because you know what? When you see them there, you see yourself. If God saves us, He can save them. And if He saves them, it reminds us, as He saves them and they're bad, it reminds us to reflect on our own salvation. You know what? He's going to save them the same way He saved us. So it really should squash our spiritual pride knowing that Israel has a future. Israel has a future? They killed the Messiah. Israel has a future. Remember, it's all of God anyway, which leads us to the second thing to learn from a future for the nation of Israel, and that would be salvation is all of God. And this really is in verses 25 to 32. So we'll go back to verse 25, and we'll work our way through verse 32. And if we can just pause before we start reading it, and, I, and if I can just tell you what my agenda is. My agenda is obviously the whole sermon, but my pastoral agenda is that you would get this. So my prayer for you, before today even began, is that you would understand this. Some of you don't understand this. And if you do understand it, that you would re-understand it. Salvation is all of God. It's all of God. And as new Christians, we understand this to a degree, and then we forget sometimes, and it shows up in our pride, looking down on other people, because they don't deserve grace, as if we do. Let's, let, let's just settle this issue once and for all, if need be. Salvation is all of God. And that will cause you to not be spiritually prideful, and it will cause you to say, you know what? God can have a future for the nation of Israel even though they're spiritual flunkies because guess what? Every, everyone is a spiritual flunky. And if salvation is all of God, then this can happen. So keep that in mind as we work through these numerous verses. Verse 25 says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
You say, how does that teach me that it's all of God? Well, even from the very beginning, the partial hardening, that's the work of God. Chapter 9, verse 18, God is the one who hardens. So, so God has done that. And then verse 26, will be saved. Please notice that, that that's all of God too because will be saved. They're not going to save themselves. They're the passive ones. God is going to do this for them. He must do it for them. It's by God for Israel. It's not their work. Now, if you're wondering about what all Israel means, you're in good company because there's a lot of ink spilled over what all Israel means. Let's just start by seeing it as great. I think all is a great word. It's meant to be inclusive and great. Do you know that God has caused a partial hardening on Israel, but He has a plan to save all of Israel, and it is a future plan is the emphasis. Now, all is used in different ways in the Bible, but let's make sure we understand that it's in a great sense. There's a good note in the ESV study Bible I noticed that it says it doesn't necessarily mean every single individual because in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, he refers to there's Israel and then, then, then there's Israel. There's Israel and there's elect Israel, if you will. But it could just absolutely mean every single one of them. Maybe that's just the safest way to go. There's a future for the nation of Israel where they will be saved and the Bible says all of them. Whatever that is, it's great. It's great, but God is going to be the one who does it. There's more evidence that salvation is of the Lord in verse 26, as it is written. Here's how we know that it's going to happen. As it is written. Where is it written? It's written in the Old Testament in prophecy, which is what God says He will do. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I hope you've caught my emphasis or my emphasis, <laughs> wherever you want to put the syllable. God is going to do this. They don't deserve it. It's true, just like you don't deserve it. But God sends the Redeemer. God saves them. God takes away their sins. The hero in salvation is who it always is. It is God. So to conclude that Israel is unsavable is revealing that you somehow think that the only way to be saved is to be a good person, which causes you to come back to the fact that you don't even understand the gospel because there are no good people. A future for the nation of Israel teaches us about salvation because they shouldn't ever be saved. Read their history. But you know what? You should never be saved either. We're learning that. If God has a plan for them, it helps us to be reminding ourselves to not be arrogant because we were saved even though we were rebels too. Then, more emphasis, it doesn't stop there, verse 28, and regards the gospel, they, according to the context of verse 26, Israelites, right? As regards the gospel, they, Israelites, are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Please notice the contrast. It's purposeful. Enemies of God for your sake regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So the contrast, enemies of God, but at the same time, beloved of God. See, how, how does that work? How does that help us in our understanding? Remember Romans 5 says, we're the enemies of God apart from grace. 
Regarding the gospel, right now Israel is an enemy of God because they reject God. They haven't listened to God. They've rejected Jesus. They've not obeyed the command to believe in Him. Current status for Israel is enemy status. But just like He saves people like you and like me, He goes on to say, regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That fits in with the future for the nation of Israel. Oh, it's true, they're rejecting the gospel now, but you know what? God is going to save Israel. And He's not going to save them because He's foreseeing in them some great virtue. No, 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 no. It tells us right in this passage, why is He going to save them? As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He's not saying something good in them. What God is going to do, the reason God is going to save Israel is because of His elective purposes. According to, what does it say? They're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Who would that be? God Himself has made promises to Abraham, by extension Isaac, Jacob. God made these great promises to Abraham that He would keep, that He would fulfill, that He would be a great nation. So it's not because they're good, it's because God makes promises. And as we're going to see, He always follows up in the positive on His promises. According to those He has chosen, according to those He has elected, based upon His own promises for the sake of their forefathers. He has an elect people and He's going to save an elect people. Look at verse 29. For the gifts, literally for the graces. Well, in the context of salvation, the graces like faith, like repentance. For the gifts, the graces in verse 29, and the calling of God are irrevocable. I love that. Learn something about your salvation today as you learn about Israel's coming salvation. They are going to be saved because of God's own covenant promises according to His own elective purposes. And as we see here in this particular verse, the gifts, the graces, and the calling of God are irrevocable. Hmm. Now, if, if salvation were based upon God foreseeing that we would make a good decision, then when we make bad decisions, it's revoked. And he's saying, oh, no, 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 you know better. God made unconditional promises to Israel based upon his own character and his own faithfulness according to his own elective purposes. And those gifts and that calling are irrevocable. We're learning about salvation. How could God ever save Israel in the future? They're so bad. Same way he could save you when you're so bad, according to his elective purposes. I remind you that calling by Paul, and not, not by every writer in the Bible, but by Paul, remember we all have different vocabularies and we study different people's vocabulary to understand how they use words. Paul uses calling, call, call, those kinds of words, and he uses them always, scary thing to say as a preacher, always for those who are saved or those who most certainly will be saved. It's in a, 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 an election context. And he's using it certainly that way in this context, in an irrevocable context. 
Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 8, and let's see even th- this matter was true when he was talking about us. This, this should teach us something, or Romans 8 should teach us something about Romans 11 or vice, vice versa. We see that calling that's irrevocable in that great text of Romans 8. It's in 8.30, but let's read Romans 8.29 and 30. Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we read that passage and we say, We like that. At least I do. Because that's what gives me ultimate assurance. That God finishes what he starts even in the midst of suffering which is Romans chapter 8 and we should not say well we believe it's true with us but we don't believe it's true for Israel as sure as it's true in Romans 8 it's true in Romans 11 let's be reminded of that it's a great reminder for us and by the way, it seems like Romans 8 is what launched this whole thing. If you're just joining us and you weren't here for Romans before and you say, I don't really understand the book of Romans, I'm just getting involved. Well, I'm not going to redo the whole thing right now. But in Romans 8, it ends with this great reality that you can't lose God's free gift that he gave. It ends with this great reality that no matter what happens, you are secure in Christ based upon his work on your behalf and you are as secure, as secure, as secure could possibly be if you're really a Christian. That's probably what leads to Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with the Israel question. And thinking people would be saying, all right, if we're really that secure, and I'm not so sure we are because what about Israel? He made promises to them, and it doesn't look like he's kept them. And so Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with the Israel question. Well, you know what? Now we're learning for sure he does keep his promises to them. They do have a future. There is coming a day when he will save them because his promises, if you will, I'm paraphrasing now, are irrevocable. And that's the emphasis. Before we move on to the next verse, Let me say something about that word elect that we saw. What verse was that in? Can you find that word? Election, elect, Romans 11. Anybody? How about chapter 11? Where is it in chapter 11? 28. It's in 28 and chapter 8. Now that's just one of those words. Elect. Does it say elect or election? election. That's one of those words that ought not be spoken in public. You know, if it were up to a lot of people, it should never be mentioned in church. Um, don't be one of those people. Please don't be one of those people. It's everywhere in the Bible. It's all over the place. And it's repeatedly in the context of the faithfulness of God and of salvation being a free gift. Now, we're all learning and we're all in some sort of continuum of learning, but don't say if you say you're a Christian you don't believe in election. You do. Or think about the logic. If you say you don't believe in election, you believe in salvation by merit. Merit other than Christ. 
right? Because somehow God sees what we do and then He picks us? Well, that's called not believing in salvation by grace. Because grace is he, it's unmerited favor. It's not based upon something He sees us do. Just How about today be the day where you put that to bed for life and just embrace God being the Savior? Novel idea, I know. It's all over the place. Embrace it. It's good. It's, it's a gospel word. It encourages us. It's what leads us to the conclusion that, that our salvation is irrevocable. Stop and think about it. If this was based upon what you did, then you can undo it. If it's based upon what He has done, based upon His own true character, it can't be undone because it's irrevocable. And you say, why are we learning this? I just came here to worship. <laughs> you betray your ignorance, young Jedi. <laughs> you know what? The context is leading us to worship. What's really going to fuel your doxology, your glorifying God, your worship, is putting this matter to bed, to really understanding this is the work of God. And if God does this, what I could never do for myself, then I must praise Him and worship Him. And that's how Romans 11 ends. Our theology is what leads to our doxology. So we want to see that. This is all of God. And so when we read about Israel and we say they are bad people and God saves them and it's all Him. Reminder of Romans 1 to 11. <laughs> Romans 1 to 5. We're bad people and God saves us. He does it the same way. He does it the same way. Verse 30 says, just as you were at one time disobedient, if you haven't put your seatbelt on, so far you should put it on now. Uh, really en engage your mind here. Uh, pinch your spouse if need be to make sure it's your spouse. But don't, don't check out here for verses 31, 32, and 31, 30, 31, and 32. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. It's already challenging our minds. Verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Lost to you yet? Yes. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And you kind of go, blah, 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 you know. But we don't do that because it's illogical. It's masterfully logical. What we should be seeing is God has a purpose, a saving purpose. And it causes Him to work with Gentiles and it causes Him to work with Jews and He does this magnificent work to the point where He brings salvation to both in an amazing way. To the point where we're to be impressed at the end where it says that He might have mercy on all. God is a great saving God and He is working in great saving ways. Here's what I wrote down. I don't want to get it wrong. So God's saving purposes are purposeful and the purpose they serve is the great one of bringing His great salvation to pass. We're supposed to be reading those three verses saying, Wow! God saves and He saves greatly. He doesn't just save Jews. He doesn't just save Gentiles. He saves 
all. Not as in universalism. Universalists want to use this passage and say, see, in the end it works out for everybody. That's not the idea. You know why we know it's not the idea? Romans tells us it's not the idea. Read it in context. Read chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, just as an example of a text that will tell us there are those who are judged and there are those who are condemned. Our context would tell us, let's interpret the Bible like we would interpret other literature with our brains turned on. Verse 25 was talking about Jew and Gentile, and so here he says all, he's referring to Jew and Gentile. And by the way, you better know this when you read your Bible, or you better figure it out eventually, or you're going to say the Bible is a riddle book. Universalism isn't true because there's judgment on some, but universalism is true because it says all. Read it in the context. The all would be Jew and Gentile. Theologians have to put it this way, or Bible scholars have to put it this way so that we can make some sense of the word all. There is a difference between all without exception, universalism, and all without distinction, meaning Jew and Gentile. And that's not fancy word tricks. It holds true. Look at the passages. All without exception, universalism, all without distinction, Jew and Gentile. Start looking at all passages. Start looking at a lot of world passages. They're very strong in Jewish emphasis. And then it talks about Gentiles are included. All are included. All kinds. And that seems to be the idea that he has here. Now, I don't want to get off track more than I already have. That's not to be the emphasis. The emphasis is to be that God saves. That God saves from start to finish. That God and God alone saves. That salvation is of the Lord. And that's really what I'm hoping and praying you settle in your mind. Salvation is not a partnership, as has been said to me. Unless you mean a partnership among the triune God. God, according to His elective purposes, has chosen to save sinners, Jews and Gentiles. But He's the one that sends the Redeemer. He's the one that works. He's the one that justifies. He's the one that saves. He's the one that calls. He's the one that predestines. And that's what makes it irrevocable. I'm sure of my salvation today because I didn't do anything to earn it. But if I did something to earn it, then I couldn't be so sure because what if I dropped the ball? Think about these things. And if you settle this matter, you're going to find yourself with the fuse lit. If you settle this matter of salvation being all of God, you won't be able to help yourself. You are going to be like those charismatics. <laughs> Uh, meaning you are going to want to worship God. You are going to want to serve God because you have understood perhaps for the first time or maybe you've been reminded of this reality that it wasn't you. It wasn't like back in the 70s with Campus Crusade and the, the, the Crusade that said, I found it. Well, you do have to find it, but you know what? He leads you to it. And he opens your eyes and he grants you faith and he grants you repentance. And then you say, by the grace of God, I found it. So let's have a new campaign. Smiley sticker, I found it. By the grace of God, I found it. Because he chose me in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, I found it. See the difference? One is all of God. One is partnership 
mutual attaboys. Learn from Israel. Learn from Israel. Learn from Israel. They don't deserve to be saved. And I'm not saying that to be mean-hearted. Read Romans 1, 2, and 3. No one deserves to be saved. And yet he has a plan of salvation. It's awesome. Well, fuse is lit. Number three, third thing to learn about from the future, salvation of Israel, certainly from salvation. Let's see this, verse 33. Oh, and since Paul was a Jew, maybe he would say, Oi! <laughs> oh, this is for emphasis. This is blowing me away. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You don't say that if you think salvation is a partnership. You don't say that if you think you found it on your own. When it's all of Him, you say that kind of thing. I love that statement. This is theology bringing doxology. Let's look at it piece by piece. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. And let's see the context in salvation. Theologians sometimes want to use these verses in their systematic theologies just to talk about how great God is. I say, good job, theologians. But let's be better theologians and keep it in this context. Context is salvation. He's certainly talking about Israel's salvation and he's praising God, the depth of the riches of God, but it's salvation. Then look with me at verse 26. If that's true, if God is so rich in salvation, it says in verse 26, the deliverer. Oh, by the way, quoting the Old Testament text, translated in Isaiah 59, 20 as Redeemer. Oh, now we're talking about riches in salvation. As it is written, the Deliverer, the Redeemer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Oh, the depth of the riches of God in salvation because of Christ as a great Redeemer. He's got to save Jew and Gentile. He's got to save anyone and everyone who would ever be saved. He's got to atone for the sins of all of future Israel, not to mention all the, the Gentiles. And you say, oh, the depth of the riches of God in redemption. The value of Christ as the Redeemer has got to be unfathomable. We're not talking about, oh, the depth of the neighborhood pool kind of deep we're talking about the deepest place in the atlantic ocean if you want an illustration twenty-eight thousand plus feet deep unfathomable wow if god is going to save all in the romans 11 sense he's got to be rich when it comes to redemption christ has got to be great the deliverer has to be something special and then let's keep working on that little section the depth of the wisdom of God in salvation. Now we're still deep, and now the deep wisdom of God. Please notice the purposeful contrast in our text here. In verse 33, we're talking about the wisdom of God. In verse 25, we learned about our wisdom. Lest you be wise in your own eyes, right? Draw a line from wisdom to wisdom in your text, and you say, don't have it be that you're so wise that you figured out how to save yourself because you're better than other people like Israelites. Oh no, this is all of God to the point where you see that it's all of God and you worship Him to the point where you say, oh, the depth of the wisdom, not of me because I found it. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God that He would do this. That He would be 
the great Savior, the depth of it all. And then the depth of the knowledge of God and salvation. It's cool to see that those two things are together, the wisdom and knowledge. Because in my mind, I go right to Colossians. Oh, the profound nature of salvation in God. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. In whom are all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it's talking about Christ. What exactly does this look like, Pat? What exactly does this look like, Paul, to say that, that, oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God and salvation, that sounds great, I'm overwhelmed by it, but could you give me something more concrete? Yes, it's Christ. He's that great of a Savior that He saves Jew and Gentile, that He saves those who are unsavable. This is why entire libraries are written about trying to deal with this issue of of the greatness of salvation. Libraries are filled with books trying to help us understand just just how deep is it? Well, let's do a dissertation. Just how deep is this aspect? Let's do a dissertation. Just how deep is this aspect? Let's do a dissertation. But they've been writing dissertations now for 2,000 years. Yeah, let's write another one because we don't quite understand how how deep it is. Now, he doesn't say we can never understand anything about it to the point where Paul prays for the Colossians that they would be increasing in their knowledge of God. But you'll never get your mind around it because it's unfathomable. It's what makes theology fun. It's what makes it exciting. You say, the more I learn, the more I'm impressed. This is absolutely staggering and amazing. I, I worship God. I want to worship God like this. So let's join Paul in his astonishment. In verse 33, it says, How unsearchable are his judgments or his decisions and how inscrutable his ways. What a, what a great way to translate that. And unsearchable and inscrutable. You won't get your mind around that. The inscrutable nature of God's saving purposes. Use that today in a sentence. Inscrutable. When you say soteriological and eschatological and doxological, make sure you say inscrutable. (laughs) Salvation is so good in Christ that to try to understand God's purposes in it, it's, it's unscrutable. Just more than the mind can imagine. So we worship Him. We worship a God who could do this. He accommodates us so that we can have some understanding, but we can't have full understanding. You know, you talk to somebody who's an expert in their field. You talk to a mathematician or you talk to some profound chemist or, or scientist, some sort of research professor, and you say, so well, what do you do? And if they're kind and nice gracious, right? They dumb it down. And, and they explain to you what they do and you say, oh. And if they've done a good job, you understand what they do, at least the way you can understand it. But unless you're really naive, you know in your mind that they dumbed it down. And they're just accommodating you, trying to explain to you what it is they do. But you understand, based upon all the letters behind their name, They're accommodating you. 
God tells us of his greatness and he tells us of his great salvation, but it, he also tells us, you know what, it's un- inscrutable. It's unfathomable. It's amazing we would want to worship God in that kind of way. We should add those kind of words to our songs, huh? Inscrutable. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Uh, try nobody. <laughs> Where does God go to get some, get some training and education? Where did you get your PhD in coming up with a redemptive plan for the universe, God? Oh, I studied at the best Ivy League schools. And then I went to Europe. <laughs> Who teaches God this stuff? It's absolutely amazing to, to see what he's done. Remember those verses 30, 31, and 32? And you say that God has done this according to this amazing purpose, working with Jew, working with Gentiles, so that he might have a great saving chorus. Who teaches God how to plan like this? The answer is nobody. He's in a different league, and it shows. Think again about Romans 1 to 11. I was thinking about Romans 1 to 11 in light of this statement that we just read. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And you think about Romans 1 to 11. Just off the top of my head, here's some of the things I remember about Romans 1 to 11. From creation to rebellion to justice to wrath to substitution to union to predestination to effectual calling to redemption to justification to resurrection to sanctification to glorification. Where did God get his training to come up with such things? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom knowledge of God not because it's illogical either maybe one thing that causes us to be so impressed and even causes scholars to be so impressed is that it is logical who has known the mind of the Lord verse 35 says or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid I don't even think we need to try to answer that we know it's just a duh question He's the giver of every good gift. It all comes from Him. It all comes from Him ultimately in Christ. It's mine in Christ. Verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And I have to tell you and just be honest, I've read that verse, I don't know, I don't know hundreds of times. I've always been impressed. I've probably quoted it before in prayer meetings so I sound impressive. I've probably prayed it before because it really is impressive because it's worship. But I, to be honest with you, I've never really thought about what it means. Sorry to let you down. You should think less of me. <laughs> Unless you already do. It was just refreshing and good for me to stop and say, what does this mean? What is this about? For starters, observation number one, it's in a salvation context. It would be true in general, but let's leave it in its context. For from Him is salvation. Through Him is salvation. To Him is salvation. All things is referring to, I think, all salvation things. 
Now, you could argue that, you know what, it's actually all for him because it's all his anyway, and Christ is the one who reconciles all things. I understand that. Let's just leave it here for now. Statement one, for from him are all saving things. Let's put it that way. That's true, right? God loved us and gave himself. It comes, grace comes from him. Okay, next component. Salvation is through him. It's true too. Not only does he love us and want to save us, it's actually, as it says, through him, he has his son come and earn righteousness for us. He has his son come and atone for our sins. He has his son come and be raised from the dead. Salvation is not only from him, it is through him and it is then to him. Who gets the credit for all of this? It's Him. It's all about Him because it's Him from start to finish. And He's praising God in this way because He's already rehearsed that reality regarding the nation of Israel. Please think about salvation today. Praise God for salvation today if you've been saved and praise Him for all things salvation being from Him and through Him and to Him. And then you'll want to say with Paul, verse 36 ends with, to Him be glory forever." Let's be Baptists. Amen. We agree. And the only way we would say that is if we really have come to the place where we say, it's all of Him. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Salvation is of the Lord. Of Him, from Him, to Him. We glorify Him. And we don't say, I don't think this is a very good deal. I'm still hung up on election. No, we say, Amen! (laughs) Amen! (laughs) This is basic, basic, profound, rich worship. Eschatology, if you just have eschatology to understand future things, because as one of my former heroes used to say, you're a future snooper, stop. (laughs) Study eschatology, future for the nation of Israel here, so that you can learn about salvation, soteriology, so that you can then... Move to doxology. God, I worship you. I praise you because you are a great God who saves to the uttermost and you walk away humble because you know salvation is all of God. And if he can save Israel, he can save anybody. Oh yeah, he saved me. I wish we had a third service because I want to preach this again. We have a great Savior. Remember, He's a Savior. He's not a partner. He saves and He saves magnificently. And that causes us to worship Him. We don't worship partners. We worship Saviors. And to the degree that you don't worship Him, I'm wondering if you think He's a partner. Have today be a day where you worship Him because you see Him as a Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time together as we want to worship your Son. And we want to worship you by worshiping your Son. And we want to have this worship be empowered by your Spirit who seeks to glorify the Son. Lord, thank you for being such a gracious God. And Lord, I would ask that as we look at other people who are not Christians today, that we wouldn't think their sin is cute, we wouldn't think their sin is good, but we wouldn't look down on them in a prideful sense. 
knowing full well that the only reason we are saved, if we are saved, is because of unmerited favor. Lord, when we look at others, may we want to share the gospel with them, knowing that the unsavable, in fact, are savable, because by your grace, we're saved. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.